Live from WNUR News, I'm Nick Song. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news here on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1 in Evanston, Chicago. Northwestern is itching for students to get the vaccine. For the flu, that is. But this week, something new greeted students at the end of their test. Undergrads could get a flu shot on their way out of the test facility. Graduate students studying the creative arts are stuck in academic limbo. These students preparing for graduation were met with a harsh reality. Their graduation could be delayed because their capstone projects would need to change. And the history behind some of our nation's weirdest elections. But the way this year has been going, this election is going to get weird. Those stories and more tonight. Evanston's government experienced some major shakeups in recent days. Reporter Alex Harrison spoke with Alderman Eleanor Ravel about her thoughts on where the city's administration is headed. As the pandemic rages on and the election approaches, Evanston's city government has gained a new city manager and will lose its current mayor. The city council recently confirmed interim city manager Erica Storley to hold the seat officially, as Mayor Steve Haggerty announced he will not seek re-election in the upcoming elections this spring. I spoke with 7th Ward Alderman Eleanor Ravel, who represents the area of Northwestern and Northeast Evanston, about Storley's controversial confirmation and the mayor's sudden exit. Uh, a lot of Evanstonians had concerns about the transparency around uh, the nomination of Storley and then uh, her confirmation uh, most recently. Uh, can you kind of uh, address those transparency concerns and, and uh, the thoughts you had about them during this process? Uh, right. Well, um, I think it was a mistake uh, back in May to basically go ahead and um, appoint Erica without going through the whole um, uh, search process uh, because, I, you know, the community uh, really did feel left out of the process, would have left up, so would have felt left out of the process. Um, and um, so I'm glad that we did uh, go back to working with WHR to do a big search. Um, they uh, got applications from about 70 uh, people, and then they would say, uh, we know that pulled down to um, roughly half a dozen first-tier finalists and then another half-dozen um, second-tier candidates. Um, and really, there were three that we felt in the first tier really um, were, were very impressive candidates, Erica being one of the three. And so those are the three that we interviewed and that were part of the public forum for the community. Um, there were also two uh, panels of community representatives who met and interviewed the candidates, their finalists, as well as a panel of um, directors, of the city staff director, of department directors. Um, and so then, so we had, so we the city council had, you know, obviously we watched the public forum, we um, did our own interviews, and we had um, summary comments from the three panels who met with the finalists, um, and then and then we did meet in executive session to discuss the candidates. And they, that would not have been an appropriate discussion to do in public to talk 
how we could not have talked um, frankly and freely about our views of the candidates in, in public. That would have been a violation of privacy of the candidates and highly embarrassing. And when we got to the city council meeting where we officially approved the contract for Erica Storley, most of us explained why why it was that we chose Erica over the other two finalists. And um, I, I frankly don't see how we could, we could have allowed more time perhaps for citizens to tell us what they thought about the candidates after watching the forum. Um, but what's also important to know that we, uh, as, as re in regards to Erica, the city council had the benefit of working closely with her for over the past year that she served as interim uh, city manager. So we, so in addition to the interviews and the resumes, we really had an in-depth experience with Erica. And for me personally, that's what um, was really helpful for me in making my decision. Right. So could you go more into your decision to vote uh, to confirm Erica Storley, um, particularly with uh, special regard to the conversation around uh, equity and uh, racial diversity as uh, Erica, as a white woman, was going up against two black women. Uh, and some, some residents raised concerns about that, particularly concerning the uh, uh, current moment that we're living in politically. So if you could just explain uh, your I guess the three, three aspects of Erica's performance that um, stood out to me was um, that she is a very strong staff leader. She's really proven how she's built a wonderful uh, team, that, that she empowers them, and um, so the feedback from the panel of staff members was very positive about Erica, and, um, and I've been hearing informally from uh, some of the directors over the past year how much they, how much they really appreciated Erica's leadership during this pandemic season. Um, and so I thought that was, uh, so she'd already built this great team and she was um, uh, really good at, um, and she, she asked for and was given huge sacrifices from the staff. They took, they, uh, they took, they agreed to 10 days, take 10 days of furlough, unpaid, you know, unpaid quote vacation time. Um, she negotiated with um, the unions to achieve a, a similar kinds of um, concessions. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, that's a huge, huge undertaking to be able to do that. So, uh, so that was very important to me. Secondly, um, she is able to make really tough decisions so early in the pandemic. She um, knew that she needed to have some layoffs and make those early in the pandemic so that we could have the benefit of, of savings for a longer period of time. And I think because of the tough decisions she made, we only had about a $2 million deficit um, for, you know, when you look at the 2020 budget compared to, the, you know, given the fact that we were losing about $12 in revenue that we had been expecting to take in. Um, and then third, I've had a number of conversations with Eric over the past year sort of out of her, about some of her long range thinking for the city. So not, it's not just, you know, keeping me up to date on what 
what's happening day to day and dealing with the pandemic and delivering services, but also thinking really um, thoughtfully about um, some big decisions that we're going to be um, needing to make in the next two or three years. So I, when I look at the, the benefits of continuity with Erica, given her solid performance, I know that outweighed um, bringing in a new person who admittedly um, of the two, you know, the other two candidates would have brought, um, I think, the racial diversity that our many members in our community were um, looking for. Um, I do think Erica is very um, committed to the issue, the racial equity issues and um, including empowering the diverse voices in her staff. Um, I, I think because she's a white woman, people don't also recognize that she is herself in a, uh, uh, I don't know what it would be, um, she, she's a gay woman who uh, you know, lives with her wife here in Evanston and they have four children. I think most people don't appreciate that level of diversity that, Mayor Haggerty has uh, held his position in office for only one term of two years, uh, but he just recently officially announced that he will not be seeking re-election in the uh, spring elections that are coming up in 2021. Um, are you personally uh, surprised by Mayor Haggerty's decision not to run for re-election? One reason that he might have continued would have been we had hired a new an outside city manager, and he would have felt maybe that it would be important to be there for another term for the transition. But you know, knowing that he, that the council had hired Erica, he didn't need to worry about that um, transition issue. So I, so I think that probably helped him make make the final decision. But I think he had a lot of factors that he was considering. Um, he was absolutely the best person we could have had as mayor during the pandemic, given his professional, his whole professional career in disaster, with disaster management and working with FEMA and understanding all the ins and outs of how, how to make sure we get all the reimbursements we possibly can from the federal government and how to, how to organize um, the municipal the staff and our municipal operations to be able to really be effective in helping the community get through this pandemic. From Evanston, this is Alex Harrison, WNUR News. It's been about a year since we first heard about COVID-19. It's been about half that since we first entered quarantine. And with so much happening over that amount of time, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who'd consider 2020 to be just another year. Yet with the temperature already dropping and the leaves beginning to turn, Northwestern is getting its students ready for the annual cold and flu season. Here's reporter Miranda Chabot with more. It's been two months since the start of fall quarter at Northwestern University. If a local student follows the university's protocol, they've taken seven tests for COVID-19 on campus since coming back to Evanston. Some even have the process memorized and need to be reminded not to speed through the test before instruction. 
But this week, something new greeted students at the end of their test. Undergrads could get a flu shot on their way out of the test facility. It was free for everyone on Northwestern's health insurance plan. Those factors, convenience and cost, are part of the reason why college students often go unvaccinated. According to a 2017 survey by the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases, less than half of college students report getting their flu shots regularly. That's well below the rate for children. Parents really understand the importance of vaccines and they're delivered uh, through well-child visits. Uh, that's when the transition is to adults uh, who are going to college, uh, there's probably less than emphasis, even though it's equally as important for uh, young adults to get flu vaccines. That's Dr. Michelle Prickett. She's an associate professor of medicine and pulmonary critical care at Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine. She sees the flu clinic as an important step in getting more people vaccinated. So having um, vaccines come to you is a new model of care delivery. It's, as opposed to the old model, which was students and patients had to go to the healthcare system. More recently, you've been seeing uh, flu clinics, traveling flu teams that will come out and go into schools and workplaces to help with access to care. Trying to make it as easy and accessible as possible in the context of people's lives is probably the, the best way to get uh, more people vaccinated. The flu shot is even more crucial this year. COVID-19 and the flu both affect the respiratory tract, so their infections can look similar in their early stages. In order to enter campus buildings, Northwestern students have to fill out a symptom survey. Many of the conditions listed, like fever, cough, and shortness of breath, could be caused by either disease. Both require similar resources to test and treat. And as COVID-19 cases spike nationwide, healthcare services are already stretched thin. We are expecting a taxing of our healthcare system. And so the, anything we can do to reduce severity of respiratory illnesses will take the pressure off of our health care system to provide uh, more universal care to, to all people that need it. The more we vaccinate for flu, uh, the, the easier it will hopefully be to keep people healthy. Young adults are less likely to develop COVID-19 symptoms. That's why it's important they get vaccinated and free up health care resources for vulnerable populations. I think the importance of our younger generation and keeping all of us healthy has been spotlighted in recent days. And so uh, understanding the importance of our, our young people um, and the contributions that they're offering to ensure the safety of all people is really the most important message. Dr. Prickett is hopeful this year will inspire students to get their flu shots regularly in the future. I think, I think the term habit's a really good one. Um, I think it, once you develop a habit, it's, it's almost automatic. And so uh, if people can encourage others to do things, if college students, for an example, could encourage each other, I think that would, those are all great ways of developing habits to get people to have their flu shots. Reporting from the Jacob Center with a sore arm for WNUR News, I'm Miranda Chabot. NU students are no doubt feeling sidetracked by the COVID-19 pandemic. It's especially true for graduate students, a part of the university's sound arts and industries program. Scattered across the world, 
Many are finding difficulties in completing their final thesis project. For many, it's the only thing that's preventing them from holding a master's diploma in their hands. Arts and entertainment reporter Aaron Robinson has more. Most graduate students at Northwestern must present some form of thesis or capstone project, or both, in order to graduate. For the many creative programs Northwestern offers, such as music performance degrees or the sound arts and industries program, this thesis frequently takes the form of a performance or installation. When the pandemic hit the United States earlier this year, these students preparing for graduation were met with a harsh reality. Their graduation could be delayed because their capstone projects would need to change. My name is Meredith Haynes, and I was a student in the Sound Arts and Industries uh, cohort last year. I still haven't graduated. My mom is mad. <laughs> so my original plan, which I typed out in March, back when I thought the pandemic was going to be like over by like May, was to do an installation. Um, so I, before I went to grad school, um, I taught uh, music to kids and I really loved it. Um, and I wanted to like figure out a way to like weave curriculum and installation together. Um, so I was planning on like figuring out a way to um, teach sound art through a sound art installation. I have a really hard time um, like submitting work that's not like that doesn't feel like wholly authentic and also that doesn't feel like it's like the absolute best I can do and I think that's part of the reason too why I um, like why it took me so long to do it um, because I just and like very reluctant to just like pull something together just to fulfill a requirement. Um, that's just like not who I am. I'm going, I actually was granted like access to campus tomorrow. I'm going to like Lois Hall. So I'm gonna kind of like mix the project there. It's been like really hard um, to mix like my thesis and capstone project over the summer um, because like I don't have like facilities to do it in because um, like I do mostly like performance and installation and I live in a house with five people in like a really crowded area um, and I just kind of like had to do it in my basement and the primary like sound amplifiers that I've been working with are megaphones. So it's been like kind of hard because like they have a really weird like frequency response and they're also like really unreliable because they're super, super cheap. It's been like difficult and I want a space where I can like really hear what it sounds like. So I think I'm just gonna do like one more performance and then call it uh, a day for grad school, but then like work on it more um, as time progresses, like I really want to do like residencies and stuff like that. So hopefully we'll like hold some weight in that realm. The audio you heard in this story is a rough draft of Meredith's capstone project. She and many other Northwestern grad students continue to find alternative ways to complete their research and new avenues for their capstone project required for graduation. 
This has been Aaron Robinson reporting for WNUR News. If you think this year's 2020 election is weird, well, just wait until you hear about these. With more, here's Oddities reporter Zach McCrary. Ah, the presidential election. A process where Americans come together to stand in lines for hours on end to bubble in a little circle next to the name of the person that they want to be President of the United States of America. It's a process as patriotic as trying to buy milk at Walmart on Black Friday. In all seriousness, if you haven't voted yet, please save yourself time and vote early to avoid this. Make a plan to vote sometime this year on or before November 3rd. This year, 2020, has been an interesting year, to say the least. Not only is this year an election year, but we're also in the midst of one of the biggest pandemics in modern history. I have personally been stuck at home in Las Vegas since March, waiting for the pandemic to go away so I can actually go back to campus. But I digress. There's still an important election at hand. And important it has seemed to be. Nearly 80 million early voting ballots have been cast so far, compared to almost 60 million in 2016, the last general election. Everyone from the NFL to Patagonia to absolute vodka is telling people the same message. Get out, make your voice heard, and vote. But the way this year has been going, the selection is gonna get weird. The 2016 presidential election was also a little weird for its electoral college votes. When we see the final results on election day, the results are assuming the actual electors of the Electoral College will not go against the popular vote in each state, or of the congressional district depending on the state. These are called faithless electors, and these fell on both sides of the aisle last time around. One elector from Texas gave a vote to Ron Paul as president, with Mike Pence as his vice president. Even stranger, three Democratic electors from Washington voted for Republican Colin Powell each with a different vice president, one of such being Elizabeth Warren. Combined, 25 people voted for a Colin Powell ticket in the whole of the United States. However, no electoral votes went to independent presidential candidate Dee's Nuts in 2016. This guy, this candidate, this name, Dee's Nuts, is polling among the other major contenders. Dee's Nuts trended in public policy polls at one time bringing in 9% of the total poll. These Nuts, as it was later found out, was the pseudonym of then 15-year-old native Iowan Brady Olson, who said he was disenfranchised by the two-party system. However, there have been weirder presidential candidates over the years. In 2008, Jack Shepard from Minnesota ran for president as a Republican. Shepard, however, hasn't lived in Minnesota for years. He now lives in Rome, supposedly since 1997. In 1982, Shepard was charged with arson for allegedly setting fire to the building where his dental office used to be. Prior to that, he had served time on charges for criminal sexual misconduct and drug possession. Since then, he's been on the run from the law, living in Italy with his two teenagers. Shepard ran in the 2020 Democratic primary, having flipped parties. However, this bid was short-lived. Another interesting presidential hopeful, John Hagelin. Hagelin has a lengthy CV. He's graduated summa cum laude with an A.B. in physics from Dartmouth, later going on to get his M.A. and Ph.D. in physics at Harvard. 
He's done research at CERN, later SLAC, and published more than 70 papers over his academic career. While studying at Dartmouth, Hagelin studied in Vittel, France. While he was there, Hagelin learned of TM, or Transcendental Meditation, a meditation technique created by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in India. Transcendental Meditation is a simple, natural, effortless mental technique. Practice sitting comfortably with the eyes closed, typically for 15 to 20 minutes, twice a day. And the technique turns the awareness within to explore inside. Hagelin came back to the States as a teacher of TM. In 1992, Hagelin became a co-founder of the Natural Law Party, a U.S. political party founded on the principles and values of transcendental meditation. He ran for president under the Natural Law Party in 1992, and also in the 96 and 2000 elections. The 2000 election nomination was controversial, as Hagelin was also nominated by the Reform Party that year. One problem. The Reform Party already had a nominee in Pat Buchanan. The FEC had to intervene to declare Buchanan as the official Reform Party nominee, thus being the only one to receive federal election funds under the Reform Party. The Natural Law Party, while it had some publicity and growth in the late 90s, fizzled out and formally dissolved in 2004. Today, Hagelin is a director of the Institute of Science, Technology, and Public Policy. But today, no matter who you vote for, what matters most is that you vote this election if you can. Your vote is your voice in the governing process, and you lose that voice if you choose not to vote. Keep an eye on your local candidates as well, as they're the people who most directly affect the laws and policies in the area in which you live. This election will be one to remember, so make your voice heard and vote. I'm Zach McCrary, WNUR News. Now for this week's roundup. Northwestern underclassmen will be welcomed back to campus for the winter quarter. University President Morton Shapiro announced the news on Wednesday over a school-wide email. Shapiro said the decision stemmed from the school's low COVID positivity rate, which has stayed around 0.6% for the most of the fall. However, according to a new report put out by the university earlier today, that figure has nearly doubled in the past week to around 1.1%. Nevertheless, winter classes are set to begin online come January 3rd, with some classes planning to move in person following the two-week-long Wildcat Wellness Quarantine Period. Following the two-week-long Wildcat Wellness Quarantine Period. COVID-19 forced most students to stay home this fall, and that's had a big economic impact throughout Evanston. The city projected a $2 million deficit for their end-of-the-year budget. The reason for this? Parents, fans, and other visitors are staying home and not spending money at local hotels and restaurants. Students can't study at their usual coffee shops and eateries around town. All this means the city's pockets are stretched thin. And the suburban and suburban Cook County is on track to shatter all previous voting records this year. The county clerk's office received over 550,000 mail-in ballots ahead of this year's election. That's five times as many ballots requested for the 2016 election. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. 
Thanks to my producer, Olivia Lloyd. And reporters Miranda Chabot, Zach McCrary, Aaron Robinson, and Alex Harrison. You can listen to these and other stories of the day on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and online at WNUR.org. Your next news break will be Monday, November 2nd. On behalf of everyone here at WNUR, I'm Nick Song. Thanks for listening. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming.